The former police chief in the Delphi case has doubts about Richard Allen's guilt. J.J. Vallow will finally be laid to rest. Sam Bankman-Fried says, I need more drugs to decide whether I need to testify. A federal bankruptcy judge resigns for an inappropriate relationship with an attorney that was appearing before him. A key witness in the Ghislaine Maxwell trial is dead. Natalie Holloway's suspect pleads guilty, but not to her murder. And um, when your bad day gets a heck of a lot worse. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below and hit that little bell so that you receive notifications of when we go live or put up new content. Now, remember, you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. And I'm telling you, we were crushing it there for a while. So if you, you know, maybe it's not convenient, check it out on any of your podcasting apps. Just search Crime Talk. So for those of you who have been watching in our Patreon family, you all know that I've been trying to cut back on my energy drinks. You know, the ones that give you wings. Well, because I feel like uh, lately they've been making it a little more difficult to fall asleep at night. And if you've been a fan, you know I don't drink coffee. And so I've been trying these little bottles of Magic Mind. So if you're like me and you don't like the crashes and jitters that come from coffee and energy drinks, then you have to try out my new favorite caffeine hack, Magic Mind. I love that they are small and easy to transport. I usually drink them on the way in to work or heading straight to a court in the morning. And by the time I'm at my desk, I am ready to take on the world and all the craziness that comes with it. I'm looking into stocking up the fridge here at Magic Mind so that the entire team, Frank and Mo, can feel the benefits as well. And here's the exciting part. They've given a fantastic discount deal for you, and you need a code for that. All you have to do is go to magicmind.co forward slash crime talk and use the code CT, right? CT for crime talk, 40 for 40% off. CT40 off your first subscription. Or if you aren't into all that, you can get 20% off your first purchase. But let me break it down for you. With the subscription, you're getting a total of 40% off, which comes to around about $3 per bottle. And I'm telling you, that is a steal. And I'll leave the link in the show notes. And the best part is that they have a money back guarantee. Because what do we say? It's always about the money. But we want you to be happy, and I don't endorse products that I don't use and that I don't believe in. So why wait? Head over and go to www.magicmind.co forward slash crime talk and use that code CT40, crime talk, to get 40% off to supercharge your day with Magic Mind. Remember, CT40 is the discount code. All right, let's go ahead and open the October 16th, 2023 record, and let's call the first matter on the docket. Does the former police chief in the Delphi investigation think Richard Allen is innocent? Well, the former Rushville assistant chief of police, a guy by the name of Todd Click, spoke on a podcast late last month about his beliefs shortly after Allen's attorney filed their motion claiming that the 2017 murder of Livy German and Abigail Williams 
had been carried out by a member of a Nordic cult. Now, in the filing, as you may recall, we went into it in great, great detail. Allen's legal team stated that his claim of innocence and instead pointed a finger of suspicion at a group of local men they accused of being members of the pagan Norse religion called Odinism. Now, the attorneys claimed that two groups of Odinists, one from the Delphi area and one from the Rushville area in southeastern Indiana, killed the girl as part of a religious sacrifice. To further their allegations, they claimed investigators found multiple ritualistic symbols at the crime scene, including sticks placed over Abby and Libby's bodies at the crime scene to form Germanic letters associated with Odinism. Now, a letter painted on a tree with Libby's blood and a faux antler created with sticks and branches placed above Abby's head. Additionally, some of the branches had been pre-cut with a power saw, suggesting that they were prepared before the killing. Now, quote, the stick configuration is a spot-on resemblance for the rune, a letter, called Hegel, a footnote in the memorandum stated, and the rune is used to depict the word hail. Therefore, the combination of the Hegel rune found on Abbey and the Anzus rune found on the tree, when combined, would proclaim hail Odin. Now, the Delphi investigators, according to the Allen's attorneys, quickly abandoned the obvious correlation, according to Allen's attorneys, between the crime scene and the Odinism, despite the obscene amount of evidence linking Odinism to the crime scene. Now, Mr. Click told the hosts of the podcast that he doesn't believe Abby and Libby were killed during a ritualistic sacrifice, nor does anyone else in law enforcement believe that theory. Mr. Click basically accused the defense of twisting facts for sensationalism. Now, when he was asked ultimately by the host if it's correct that he disagrees with the defense on the motive for the murders, but agrees with them on who is responsible, Click responded, yes, that is accurate. Now, after being prompted to elaborate on the details, he uh, deemed everything to be a little sensationalized. But Mr. Click continued and stated, like I said before, it would be impossible for me to explain anything further without compromising details of the investigation. Now, the defense team seemingly put Ferency, Murphy, and um, I on a pedestal, the investigators. We did nothing extraordinary. We just did our jobs and followed every lead that we had. Now, reading between the lines of Click's words, the host then said, was it clear to the host that he didn't believe Allen was responsible for the murders or at the very least solely responsible. Let me know what you think, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, Odinism, is it a thing? I mean, it's a thing, but do you think he was responsible for Libby and Abigail's death? Or was it Mr. Allen? Let me know. Obviously, we give him the presumption of innocence, but uh, let me know what you think. Next on the docket, J.J. Vallow will finally be laid to rest. Judge Stephen Boyce has ordered, he signed an order, basically agreeing to a stipulation signed by um, the defense, the prosecutor, and the court that the body of J.J. Vallow may be released to his next of kin. Now, J.J.'s parents, J.J.'s grandparents, have been waiting a long time, in fact, since June 9th of 2020, to ultimately have a funeral for the seven-year-old murdered by his adoptive mother, Lori Vallow. Now, you may say, why did it take so long? Well, when there's a case like this and the cause and manner of death are 
somewhat at issue. Obviously, we know it was a homicide, but exactly what killed them. The defense is entitled to have independent testing. And so they had to wait. And basically what the attorney for Chad Daybell has basically agreed to is said, you can release the body. We don't have any further testing to do. We don't need anybody else to examine it further. And therefore, you can release the body. It doesn't happen in lots of cases. I had a case involving the death of two young children. And it may sound very cold and shallow, but literally, we were trying to determine the cause and manner of death. Nobody could actually say what happened to these kids, but literally we put them in a box, not me, but the coroner's office, put them in a box, FedEx them to our expert. Our expert looked at them, examined them, sent them back in a box. And ultimately, ultimately at the end of the case, at the close of all the appeals, the young children were released to the father uh, for, for burial. So it's unfortunate, but sometimes that's what happens. And in this particular case, uh, hopefully it helped bring justice for uh, JJ. And now he has a right to be properly buried. Next, Sam Bankman-Fried says, give me more drugs. That's right, Sam Bankman-Fried has demanded. And you know what happens when defendants demand. Well, they're usually shut down pretty hard. Anyway, his attorneys are requesting a higher Adderall dose to focus at his fraud trial, and he needs it to help decide whether to testify in his own defense, according to his attorneys. Now, in a letter written by the attorneys to uh, Judge Lewis Kaplan, they say that one dose of Adderall that uh, FTX cryptocurrency exchange founder Sam Bankman-Fried is giving is getting right now is not enough. He states that um, he supplied with one dose in jail early each morning to treat his attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but it wears off by the time the trial starts. Now, as we approach the defense case and the critical decision of, with, of whether Mr. Bankman-Fried will testify, the defense has growing concerns that because of Mr. Bankman-Fried's lack of access to Adderall, he has not been able to concentrate at the level he ordinarily would, according to his attorneys. And since his trial on charges of stealing billions of dollars kicked off on October 3rd in that Manhattan federal courthouse, Mr. Bankman-Fried has been seen during testimony typing on a laptop and whispering to his lawyers. Now, his lawyers have now even suggested adjourning his federal trial for a full day until the medication dosage could be fully um, sorted out. Now, the court filing also states that he takes about 10 milligrams of Adderall three to four times a day. The maximum recommended adult daily dose of Adderall, both immediate release and extended release, is about 40 milligrams. So some doctors may recommend up to 60 milligrams spread across the day to treat narcolepsy. Now, when his bail was revoked and he was put in a jail cell there in Brooklyn, he struggled with accessing the prescription drugs and his lawyers claimed he didn't even get his medications for 11 days. And the prosecutors have said they may rest their case as early as October 26th. And obviously, the defendant in the U.S. criminal case has no obligation to present any evidence. And taking the stand carries the risk of being subjected to probing cross-examination by the prosecutors. And therefore, he wants to be on his game. I'm not sure what the judge will do. Uh, he'll probably defer to the medical personnel at the federal detention center because they are the ones that are responsible for those prescriptions. That's just the way it is. We have clients all the time say, hey, I'm not getting my meds, blah, blah, blah. But when you're in custody, you have to see the doctor first and they start all over unless you can provide 
proof of those medical records, which I'm sure SBF's family can do. But the reality of it is it's going to be up to the medical personnel and not the judge. He's a judge. He's not a pharmacist. He's not a psychiatrist prescribing medication. Now, obviously, Sam Bankman-Fried has a big decision to make. The right to testify is a personal decision in any criminal case. And that personal right remains with the defendant, in this case, Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried. No one, not his attorneys, the prosecutors, the judge, family, can force him to testify or not to testify. But if he chooses to testify, he will be subject to cross-examination just like any other witness. And um, I don't know, if a witness is out of custody, do they take a little extra dose of Adderall that day? I don't know. Just to be on your game? It'll be interesting to see what the judge does. I don't think he's going to get extra dosage. I don't think they're going to pause the trial so his medications can get up to speed. But the court also has to balance the fact that he needs to make sure that uh, the defendant understands what's taking place. Clearly he does. He just gets a little distracted if he doesn't have his medication. Let's wait and see. Next, a bankruptcy judge resigns for an inappropriate relationship. Now, we have talked about these types of situations several times, and I don't understand how these judges seem to get themselves in this particular spot. In this case, we're going to be talking about United States bankruptcy judge David Jones. He is a magistrate or is he is a bankruptcy judge in Houston, and he resigned after the federal appeals court opened an ethics probe spurred by a previously undisclosed romantic relationship with an attorney whose firm had cases before his court ending his tenure as the busiest bankruptcy judge in the United States. Now, the chief judge uh, for that district, a guy by the name of uh, Randy Crane of the Southern District of Texas, told reporters on Sunday that Jones resigned effective November 15th, and Jones had already stepped back from overseeing large bankruptcy cases and began reassigning them to two other judges on the court. Now, the New Orleans-based Fifth United States Circuit Court of Appeals issued a formal misconduct complaint against Judge Jones on Friday after the judge revealed he had been in a years-long romantic relationship and shared a home with a bankruptcy attorney. Now, the attorney, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Freeman, is the woman, and um, that took place and continued until December of last year. Now, Freeman had been a partner at Jackson Walker, a local law firm that filed numerous uh, cases in front of uh, Jones. And the Fifth Circuit said that Jones had kept information about his personal relationship from two other judges who oversaw an effort to recuse him from a dispute involving bankrupt energy company McDermott International. Well, it doesn't take an ethics expert, uh, but basically you have to um, disclose any relationships that could cast doubt on the integrity of the court. Now, the misconduct complaint has already led to a call for further review in the cases where Judge Jones had oversaw the cases and the young lady's firm was also involved. I don't get it, ladies and gentlemen. Think about it. Yes, it totally says the system is rigged if the judge is sleeping with one of the attorneys on the case. You just don't do that. And if you are, you have to disclose it. Um, and guess what? All those cases that the judge did participate, they may have to be reviewed and go back and do them all over again. Because clearly there's going to be somebody that's going to say, well, I got screwed by this judge. And the reason the judge ruled against me is not because I was wrong, but because he was sleeping with the attorney on the case. Yeah, I think I'd want to know that. 
wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. Lots of judges get in trouble like this. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Um, just don't do it. Next, a key witness in the Ghislaine Maxwell case has died. Carolyn Andriano, a victim of the sex trafficker, that guy named Jeff, whose testimony was crucial to putting away his alleged accomplice, Ghislaine Maxwell, has died. Now, there was no obituary or funeral service after she died earlier this year, according to the police in the West Palm Beach area, and they opened up an investigation into her death. The police spokesperson uh, has stated that the investigation was concluded and that uh, Carolyn died of an accidental overdose. Now, the 36-year-old mother of five had planned to start a new chapter of her life in North Carolina at a new house with a big fireplace and a half-acre lot and a chicken coop, according to family and friends. And Carolyn and her husband, a guy by the name of John Pitts, had purchased the property just weeks before she was found unresponsive in that West Palm Beach hotel room on May 23rd. Now, before her death, she apparently was quite ecstatic, according to her mother, and she said that she was all set up for a whole new lifestyle. Her mother stated that Carolyn's death was a shock because she was working on building a new life and recently texted about being free from drugs and alcohol. The way her mom sees it, something about her daughter's overdose just doesn't make sense, and she wants the police to investigate the case further. The police, however, said that the case would be officially closed this week, and officers on the scene apparently took a statement from Pitts, who told them that Caroline had been using drugs and that Carolyn's brother, who rushed to the hotel after Pitts texted the mom that Caroline had died, Pitts tried to administer CPR and was given directions over the phone uh, via 911. Now, it should also, needless to say, her mom says the case shouldn't be closed and uh, believes that the police need to investigate. She, her mother's saying that she has begged them, sent them numerous messages, and she's asking them to have a meeting to discuss her concerns to no avail. The mom is also in a legal battle with Pitts over Caroline's will, which was filed in 2010 before she married him and which left her estate to her mother and her two oldest children. Because the will hadn't been updated, Pitts and his three kids with Carolyn were left out of the estate. Carolyn had received millions from the Epstein-related settlements through the probate courts, according to the documents, indicated she had $183,000 in the bank account. And the filing also listed unknown assets as the J.P. Morgan and the Deutsche Bank class action settlements, which, as had been reported, were roughly $290 million to $75 million, respectively, and will result in some big payouts to the victims, or in this case, the estate of the victims. Now, while a cause or manner of death hasn't been released, a toxicology report indicates that Caroline had methadone, fentanyl, and aprazolam, a generic name for Xanax, in her system when she died. Carolyn was one of the four victims to testify at the Maxwell trial in December of 2021, telling the jury that the British socialite had groped her and routinely scheduled her massages with that guy named Jeff, who molested her up to three times until she was too old for him at the ripe age of 18. Now, at the start of the uh, federal trial, prosecutors asked Caroline if she'd ever been addicted to drugs, and she replied, pain pills and cocaine. Caroline also testified about her home life when she was 14 and had visited that guy named Jeff's Palm Beach mansion uh, as early as 2001. She stated that she was allowed to do whatever she wanted, and she added, because my mom was an alcoholic and a drug addict. 
Asked about Carolyn's testimony. The mom denies this. No, I was working. I was working to pay for my children. I didn't get any supplements. I had to work, she said. That's completely inaccurate. Now, Carolyn, who said she had dropped out of uh, school in the seventh grade and never returned to school, later testified that she became addicted to drugs while visiting that guy named Jeff's little uh, compound. And uh, she used anything that could block out to her um, the particular moment. She had confided in Miss Maxwell and uh, that guy named Jeff about her history and being abused herself as a young child by a relative and her family's addiction struggles. This emboldened the uh, high society couple to groom her and even attempt to bring her to that guy named Jeff's Virgin Island compound. Caroline stated under oath that she told him that she was only 15 and she couldn't leave. Anyway, the prosecutors also asked Caroline about her medications, and she answered that she took methadone, an antidepressant, Xanax, and a drug for schizophrenia because I'm scared that my kids are going to be kidnapped. When Miss Maxwell's lawyers cross-examined Caroline, um, he noted that uh, that guy named Jeff's Victim Compensation Fund awarded her $3.25 million, but had subtracted 446000 because she received that amount in 2009 from a lawsuit against that guy named Jeff and his assistant, Sarah Kellen. Yes, but no money will ever fix what happened to me, Caroline stated on the stand. And Caroline testified using only her first name but came forward after the conviction of Miss Maxwell. I'm a little surprised we're just hearing about this. Can you believe May and we're just finding out a key witness in the Ghislaine Maxwell case? And what's more interesting, now there's a suit between the families, the mom and the husband, because the husband and her three kids didn't get any money because the will hadn't been updated, which is just a quick reminder, ladies and gentlemen, update your will. I'm guilty, need to do it myself. But um, that's what happens. If there's a valid will, uh, it, it, it gets ugly. It gets ugly um, if you don't update it and there's things that need to be changed. So think about that. And um, seriously, seriously, it makes you wonder. She was doing well. She had a bunch of money. Uh, obviously, she had some demons. Accident? Let me know. Accident or something nefarious? Accident? Something nefarious? Let me know in the comments below. Next, Natalie Holloway. Remember her? That's right. Well, the suspected killer pleads guilty, but not to murder. That's right, Jordan Vandersloot, the main suspect in the unsolved 2005 disappearance of Natalie Holloway, is expected to plead guilty to extortion after trying to get her mom to pay him $250,000 to reveal the location of the then missing, or still missing, teen's body. The uh, court records indicate that uh, Vandersloot intends to plead guilty in federal court in Alabama this coming Wednesday. He had previously pled not guilty, but that's normal for the course in the federal court. And the Dutchman was extradited to the United States in June to face fraud and extortion charges tied to the disappearance of Holloway, who was on a class graduation trip to Aruba. She was last seen leaving a bar with Vandersloot, who was 17 at the time, and Vandersloot was identified as a suspect in her disappearance, but never charged in connection with her death. Her body has never been found. Now, U.S. prosecutors allege that in 2010, Vandersloot sought $250,000 from Beth Holloway to have the location of her daughter's body. Well, I'll need to say that didn't happen, and a grand jury indicted him that same year. After receiving a $25,000 payment up front from the desperate mother who spent years trying to figure out what happened to her daughter, her lawyers met Vandersloot in Aruba, but the plan quickly unraveled. It was revealed that the foundation of the house he claimed her remains were buried in 
was not under construction at the time of her disappearance. And emails from the suspect later revealed that he concocted the whole story. Just days later, on the fifth year anniversary of Natalie's disappearance, Vandersloop strangled a woman to death at a casino in Peru, where he's been serving out a lengthy prison sentence there. Like I said, he was extradited to Alabama in June to face these charges. I don't know what to say some days, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, this case has been going on so long, um, but yet we just now get around to it. I mean, and we still have no more resolution uh, for Natalie Holloway's family. All right, um, we've always said, let it go, particularly when it comes to road rage incidents. And here, let's say this guy, he said he was having a bad day. Well, guess what? It got a lot worse. So this guy, Jeffrey Hammond, got involved in a little road rage incident, killing the man who confronted him for partially blocking an intersection. Now, police said that he then shot a bystander who started to record the incident, according to the arrest affidavit. Now, this all took place in Portland, Oregon, and um, the suspect is a guy by the name of, like I said, Jeffrey Hammond. Apparently, police were dispatched on Wednesday about 4.34 p.m. regarding a shooting in the uh, Southwest 10th Avenue and the Southwest Alder Street. Officers found two men shot when they arrived. They began life-saving measures on the victim until the Portland Fire and Rescue arrived and provided advanced care. One patient died at the scene. Now, police identified the dead man as Ryan Martin of Southwest Washington. The other was transported to a hospital by ambulance with injuries that are believed to be non-life-threatening. Police claimed that Hammond had been partially blocking traffic at an intersection outside of the Moxie Hotel. This is all according to the arrest affidavit. And Martin drove up from behind. Officers said the men flipped each other off and Martin swerved around Hammond's car and stopped on the other side of the intersection. He stepped out to confront Hammond, but Hammond loaded a gun as the man approached him and shot him in the chest. Now, the dying man said, I'm sorry, as he was falling to the ground. I had a bad day. I think it just got a lot worse. Well, police then allege Hammond tried to shoot him again, and he did not because the firearm malfunctioned. Now, according to witnesses at the scene, Hammond then flashed something metallic to Mr. Martin. Apparently, it looked like a police badge of some type. He allegedly said while trying to fix the gun, you are lucky I don't shoot you in the heart. Hammond later allegedly told detectives that he said, probably, you're lucky I didn't shoot you in the head. Close enough for government work. Anyway, officers said a bystander started recording the incident on the phone, and then Hammond shot him in the leg. Mr. Hammond then allegedly drove from the scene while calling 911 and admitting on the phone to the shooting of the both men. He turned himself in at the top of the floor of a parking garage next to the courthouse. He claimed he shot the other man because he believed he was possibly being set up for some type of ambush and it looked like something out of a military uh, type of a tactic that he had seen on TV or something. But the officer said they found no weapons on either one of the victims. Now, Mr. Hammond allegedly admitted to the police that he never saw Mr. Martin with a firearm or weapon of any kind. Let it go, ladies and gentlemen. Let it go. You know, road rage, I'm telling you, there's times I want to honk my horn in th this day and age. I don't do it. Represented too many people. There's lots of people out there with firearms you just don't know. And if they're having a bad day, well, guess what? You too could wind up having a bad day as well. Next on the docket, our dumb criminal of the day. This comes into the you can't make this up 
category. So a funeral home worker whose job uh, was to uh, transport dead bodies in a Nebraska county is suspended um, after having an intimate encounter with a life-sized sex doll he found in the apartment of a deceased person. This is all according to police investigators. So please meet Ryan Smith. Do you ever think his he thought this was going to be his 15 minutes of fame? I don't think so. Well, Ryan, congratulations. You made it. Anyway, so Ryan Smith and a colleague were dispatched last week to a home at the Rock Creek Apartments in Omaha to collect the body of an individual who died. Now, near the body on the bed was a very real life-sized sex doll. Now, it's unclear if the deceased was using the sex doll when he died. We're not going to get into that, but we're focusing on our dumb criminal. Anyway, police allege that Mr. Smith then subsequently called the property manager and claimed that the local sheriff had asked him to remove the sex doll to collect uh, swabs for the uh, biopsies. Well, Mr. Smith's strange request was denied by the manager, who later returned to the apartment to discover that uh, Mr. Smith was inside the unit, which had been locked with a deadbolt and a chain. Well, anyway, after Mr. Smith somehow got in and Mr. Smith exited the home with his shirt untucked and his pants in a disarray, the property manager called the police, who later busted Mr. Smith on a felony burglary charge. I'm not sure what the crime is, other than to go in, more of a criminal trespass. Is it a crime to have sex with a sex doll? I don't think it is. Anyway, probably the theft. A deputy collected the sex doll so that it could not, uh, so it could have, <laughs> the deputy collected the sex doll so that they could have it swabbed for DNA purposes. And obviously to make sure that this sex doll isn't defiled yet again. Anyway, Mr. Smith was fired from his job from the Mid-America um, Funeral Home. And uh, they specialize in removal, transportation, embalming, cremation, and shipping of remains. And apparently they do house calls too to get your excess sex dolls. <laughs> I, I, I can't make it up. I can't make it up. I just, we just bring you the news, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, what can you say? Anyway, but I'm still curious what they think the crime inside was to do because he left the doll there. Although it would have been really weird had he been walking out with a sex doll. <laughs> then you'd have a burglary. Go in, cross the plane of the door with the intent to commit a crime therein, i.e. theft. But I don't know what the crime is if you go in and you have sex with a doll. I don't think that's a crime. Anyway, let me know what your thoughts are in the comments. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Remember, tomorrow is our live show, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Join us. I've been gone. I've been on vacation. I had trials. We have a lot to catch up on and a lot to talk about. Thanks for watching. <music>